0: We had a very quiet day in the market today. The Dow Jones S&P managed to finish up a positive week in the black, although the NASDAQ and Russell 2000 were a bit lower on the day. In fact, the Russell 2000 was the only index of those four to have actually finished the week in the red. And most of the positive momentum in the stock market resulted from what I discussed during my podcast on Tuesday. The idea that a Biden win, which is increasingly more likely, you know, the closer we get to the election and Donald Trump continues to be so far behind in the polls, Wall Street now has convinced itself that a Biden win is good for the stock market. It's a positive. Now, A Trump win is also a positive, so it's pretty much a can't lose, right? I mean, either way, it's positive. But not too long ago, one of the reasons that so many people on Wall Street were bullish was because everybody believed that Trump was going to get reelected. And reelecting Trump was supposed to be good for the market. After all, the market had done very well under Trump's tenure. Donald Trump brought with him the, the promise of lower taxes, fewer regulations, more economic growth. All of that stuff, if it actually were to happen, is bullish for stocks. Some of it did happen. We did get uh, corporate tax cuts. So that was bullish for stocks. But if Donald Trump being president was bullish for stocks because of what Trump was doing, if Biden was threatening to undo all that and to increase taxes and have more regulation, you would think that Wall Street Uh, would think that was a negative. And I had expected, as I said on my last podcast, that at some point when Wall Street had to start to discount the possibility or even the probability that Joe Biden was going to win, that the market was going to sell off. But instead, the traders, I guess, took another look at the race and then decided that, yes, a Trump win is good for the markets, but a Biden win is even better. And I think it was the next day after I talked about this on my podcast on Tuesday, I read an article, it was on Wednesday, it was up on the Zero Hedge website, and it was basically handicapping the election. And this was a, I think it was a senior economist at Bank of America. Although I've seen other now uh, Wall Street houses have a similar view on the election as, as this guy from Bank of America. But he basically laid out four possibilities for the election. So first possibility is Donald Trump wins. Now, what happens to the Senate? I mean, the House is not really in question. We all know that the Democrats are gonna maintain control of the House. So there isn't even a scenario that would factor in the Republicans uh, taking back the House, because just that's not going to happen. So that's off the table. But the Senate is in play, and the Senate is currently controlled by Republicans. So either Trump wins and the Republicans keep the Senate, or Trump wins and the Republicans lose the Senate to the Democrats. Alternatively, Biden wins and the Republicans keep the Senate, or Biden wins and the Democrats take the Senate. So there are four possible scenarios. And so this economist from Bank of America was basically uh, commenting on which scenario was best and which was worse for the stock market. And believe it or not, the scenario that Bank of America considers to be the best possible outcome, right? This is what you should be hoping for. If you are in the stock market and you want the biggest gains- What Bank of America says you should be rooting for is for a Democratic clean sweep. You want Biden to be president and the Democrats to take the Senate so that they'll have uh, both houses of Congress. Now, why does Bank of America regard this as the best scenario? They regard this as an even better scenario than the number two, which is Republicans keeping the Senate and Trump keeping the White House. So that is considered the second best outcome of the four. And you would think that Bank of America would regard that outcome as better than the outcome where the Democrats take the White House and the Senate. Because after all, if we get that outcome, it is a certainty that we are going to have much higher taxes on corporations and if the tax cuts were good for the stock market, the tax hikes have to be bad. It can't be good and bad, right? Tax cuts can't be good, and then tax hikes are also good. If that's the case, then neither of it is good. The reality is, yes, if you lower taxes on corporations, you raise after-tax earnings, and therefore you raise the value of stocks, which are nothing more than the present discounted value of their future after-tax earnings. So, The Bank of America analyst knows that a President Biden and a Democratic Senate means significantly higher taxes on U.S. corporations, significantly higher taxes on the shareholders who own stock in U.S. corporations, which diminishes the value of those corporations to the people who own and buy stock, and there's going to be a lot more regulation. Corporate America is going to be bogged down with a lot of additional red tape in a Biden administration that it might not otherwise be bogged down with in a Trump administration. And complying with regulations costs a lot of money. It's expensive. It makes you less productive. That will show up in lower earnings. So despite knowing that a Biden win with a Democratic Senate means lower corporate earnings, higher taxes, more regulatory burden. That outcome is seen as better than Trump winning and the Republicans keeping the Senate. And the rationale is exactly what I was talking about on my last podcast. According to Bank of America, this is the best outcome for stocks because this guarantees the most amount of stimulus, right? What we want is no gridlock. We want the same party controlling Congress and since there's no way that Republicans are going to get the House, the only way to have clear sailing, right, no gridlock at all, to have the most amount of stimulus uh, go through Congress and get signed by the president is if we have Democrats uh, Democrat sweep. And so even though the Democrats are going to raise taxes, this is still good for the stock market because this analyst realizes that the Fed and the stimulus trumps earnings right, that earnings are secondary, that the main game is stimulus, right, that that it's the Federal Reserve that is playing the music that everybody on Wall Street is dancing to, and so what this analyst is saying is we just need more of that music. The party is going to rage on if we get more stimulus, right, regardless of whether or not the stimulus is good for the economy, who cares? All we know for sure is that the stimulus is good for the stock market and we want more of it. We want the outcome that guarantees the most stimulus and that is a Democratic uh, clean sweep. So this shows you that they realize that this whole thing is artificial when they're rooting for higher taxes because they don't even care about earnings because what's more important is the stimulus and we're gonna get more stimulus under Democrats than under Republicans. And I tend to agree with that. But I actually think that from America, right, the worst possible outcome of this election is exactly what Bank of America says is the best thing we can hope for, uh, a democratic sweep, right, a blue wave that's going to drown the country. You know, that is the worst outcome for the dollar, right? The dollar is going to get killed. That stimulus, all that stimulus, all the deficits that are going to be the result of no gridlock That traffic is going to flow, meaning that red ink is going to flow. And so that is definitely the worst possible outcome for the dollar. Now, if you think a weak dollar is good for the U.S. stock market, then maybe you can make that case. And I would say that if the dollar is weak enough in nominal terms, sure, U.S. stocks will go up. I mean, that's one of the main reasons I'm not short U.S. stocks. Because over time, I expect the U.S. dollar to lose more value than U.S. stocks. So why be short U.S. stocks when I could be long non-dollar assets that are going to go up by so much more uh, than the U.S. stocks go down or if they even go down at all. But of course, the worst outcomes as far as Bank of America is concerned is divided government. See, that's what they fear most. So the second to worst outcome according to Bank of America, would be for Trump to get reelected and for the Democrats to take the Senate. Now, I think that is kind of a lower probability outcome in my mind, but that is considered to be the second worst. It's still bad for stocks because, again, there's going to be some divided government. You're going to have Trump's still president, but he's going to lose the Senate, so it will be harder for Trump to get stimulus through a Congress that is completely controlled by Democrats because the Democrats will have the House and the Democrats will have the Senate. But the worst possible outcome, according to the Bank of America, is where Biden wins, but the Republicans take the Senate. That's the worst outcome. They've said that's terrible. Stocks are going down because they believe that the Republicans in the Senate, even though the Democrats still have the House, the Republicans in the Senate will be able to disrupt the Biden agenda and will be able to block a lot of the stimulus from coming through. And so the Republicans will be able to use uh, the Senate uh, to slow down or derail all the stimulus spending. And that's supposedly the worst outcome. I mean, personally, and as I said on this podcast, we had better hope. That if Biden wins, which he probably will, that the Republicans at least hold on to the Senate, because that's the only thing we got other than potentially the Supreme Court to kind of slow down this tide uh, of socialism that's going to be rising under Biden. But those are the scenarios that Bank of America regards as the worst for the stock market because they represent gridlock. But for the economy, gridlock is the best we can hope for, because Anything that slows down what government wants to do is a positive because government wants to do harm. Government wants to damage the economy. So the extent that a divided government minimizes the damage, that's a positive. I mean, that's why Barack Obama didn't do even more damage to the US economy than he did anyway, because the Republicans took back. Uh, Congress, because the Tea Party, right, 2010. So the Obama agenda was substantially slowed down by divided government. Had he had a Democratic Congress the entire time, then a lot more damage would have been done. And so a lot more damage will be done if we end up getting Biden as the president and uh, the Democrats controlling both houses of Congress. But, you know, I don't think it's necessarily going to be good for the stock market. As I said, you know, on my last podcast, everybody was convinced that Donald Trump, if he won, it would be terrible for the stock market, and they were wrong. The stock market did very well under Trump. Now the markets are convinced that if Biden wins, the stock market is going to go up. They're as convinced of that as they were that if Trump won, it was going to go down. So again, I think it could play out the same way Biden wins, you get a very short-lived rally as the markets get what they say is good and what they think is good. And then just like with Trump, when people thought about it again and they said, hmm, Donald Trump, lower taxes, less regulations, what's so bad about that? And they bought stocks. This time around, they're gonna say, wait a minute, Biden, higher taxes, more regulations. Maybe this is not as good as we thought. Maybe hanging our hat on stimulus isn't the best place to put it? Maybe we should uh, look for something else. So I think you could see a sell-off. But again, the downside is always going to be mitigated by the Fed. But as the Fed mitigates the downside to the stock market, they intensify uh, the downside to the dollar and to the overall U.S. economy. In fact, while I'm talking about the Fed, and this is you know a topic, I, I discussed this a little bit. I just finished the New Orleans conference. I don't know if it's too late if you haven't signed up. I think, you know, you can look at a lot of their content online. But one of the things I discussed in my keynote there was how bad the Fed's track record is and why anybody puts any stock in what these guys say. Because it's obvious that either the people on the FOMC or the chairman in particular, either the Fed chairman have been completely incompetent, and they have no idea what they're talking about, and you should just completely disregard anything that they say, any forecast that they make, or they're just lying, in which case you can't believe anything they say or any of the forecasts that they make, because they're out there. They're still talking about how great this economy is. This economy is a disaster. I mean, look at the economic numbers that have just come out today, right? We got the retail sales numbers for September. And the consensus was for a pretty big gain, 0.7% increase in retail sales, just over the 0.6 from the prior month. And X automobiles up 0.3, not as much. uh, And X automobiles and gas, it was going to be up 0.4. And the control group was going to be up 0.2 right, which would have been a a big improvement over the prior month, which was actually revised from minus 0.2 to minus 0.4. But here are the numbers that we actually got. Retail sales September up 1.9%. I think this is a record. I'm not sure. I mean, it it could be the biggest gain in retail sales in one month ever, ever. X vehicles up 1.5, same with X vehicles and gas, and the control group was up 1.5%. A surge- in retail sales. During the same month, industrial production tanked by 0.6%, right? Unexpected, they were expecting a gain of 0.6. Instead, we got a decline of 0.6, and manufacturing output, which was supposed to rise by 0.8, was down by 0.3. And capacity utilization fell uh, slightly from 72 in the prior month to 71.5. But the bottom line, is during the month of September, Americans produced less but consumed a whole hell of a lot more. In fact, Americans are consuming more now, unemployed, than they used to consume when they had jobs. How is this a healthy economy? You know, I talked about the trade deficit that we got in August, right? We haven't got the September trade deficit yet. The August trade deficit was the second biggest trade deficit in US history. And in manufacturing, it was the first biggest. Based on these numbers, we are gonna shatter the August record in September and probably break that record again in October, right? Because retail sales are surging. What are Americans buying? They're buying imported stuff. After all, we're not making as much stuff our manufacturing is going down as our consumption is going up. We have all these unemployed Americans who aren't producing anything. By definition, they're unemployed, so they're not producing goods. They're not providing services, but they're buying all kinds of stuff. Where are they getting that money? They're not earning it, right? They're not adding any productivity into the economy, but they're getting paid. They got money to spend. See, normally in a healthy economy, the money that you spend – is a function of the work that you do, right? You put work in and you get money for doing work, but the work that you're doing is adding to the stock of goods and services that everybody gets to buy. So you help to provide services and produce goods, and when you do that, you earn money. And now you can take that money and buy some of the goods and services that everybody collectively has produced. But now you have a situation where you have lots of Americans who are not doing anything to add any economic output to the economy. They're not working, so they're not adding to the supply of goods. They're not adding to the supply of services, but they're drawing down the supply of both because they're spending money. Now, where did they get the money? Because they didn't earn it during work, doing work. Well, they just got it from the government. They got checks. Well, where'd that money come from? Well, the Fed just created it out of thin air. So now you have all these Americans, unproductive Americans, who are just cashing government checks, they're staying at home and they're shopping and we're buying all this stuff. Well, we're simply buying what the rest of the world is producing. That doesn't mean we have a strong economy. We have a bubble economy. If we had a strong economy, our strong economy would be producing more stuff. And so we wouldn't be having larger deficits, we'd be having smaller deficits. To say that this is a successful economy, I mean, it would be like, let's say an individual lost his job and after he loses his job instead of reducing his spending because he no longer has any income he just decides to start spending more he just starts maxing out his credit cards and actually starts borrowing and spending more money unemployed than he ever spent out of his actual earnings right so then you would take a look at that guy and you just measure uh, how he was doing economically by looking at his spending and just ignoring his debt and ignoring the fact that he was unemployed. And you would say, oh, this guy's personal economy is booming, look at all this stuff he's buying. He's doing great, he's buying all this stuff. Well, yeah, but where's the money coming from? He's borrowing it. And if the guy doesn't have a job and he's borrowing all this money, you know, where's his headed? He's gonna have to stop spending eventually because the people lending him the money are gonna wise up and realize that you know they're not gonna get paid back. There's a huge difference between spending from income and spending from debt, especially when the income is tied to your own productivity. So you're putting into the economic pot and you're taking out of the economic pot in the same proportion. But when you're putting nothing into the economic pot and then going into debt to buy what other people put into the pot and you put nothing, I mean, how long can that go on? I mean, obviously somebody has to put in, otherwise nobody can pull out. But what's happening is it's the rest of the world right? It's the Chinese who are putting more and more into the pot, and Americans keep drawing out of that pot. Well, how long are the Chinese going to be dumb enough to keep filling up our pot? Well, their pots are empty, right? This is what I'm talking about. We are headed to a massive economic collapse, a massive currency collapse. What this data shows is the opposite of the picture that Donald Trump is trying to paint. He talked about making America great again. Today, America is- the furthest from greatness it has ever been. There is nothing great about this economy except the size of the bubble, except the size of the debt or the imbalances. We are the furthest thing from greatness we could possibly be, yet Donald Trump and everybody is wearing these MAGA hats make America great again. We, we did the opposite of that. But the Federal Reserve sees nothing wrong with this picture.
1: Traffic jams, tailgating,
0: we have a healthy economy. They, they, they think this is great. Oh, they look at these uh, retail sales and they think, oh, you see, our stimulus is working. It's not working. Yes, people are taking that money and spending it. That's part of the problem. Look, you got to go back to the beginning and remember what the Fed was saying and when they were saying it, right? When the Fed first started quantitative easing, Ben Bernanke reassured, Congress reassured the public that they were not monetizing the debt. Oh, no, no, no. We would never monetize the debt. Only banana republics monetize debt. We're not going to do that here. This is the Federal Reserve. This is the United States. We're not going to monetize debt. See, Bernanke said that the Federal Reserve will never be a permanent source of funding to the United States. That the Fed, yes, the Fed was buying bonds, but technically, the Fed was not monetizing those bonds because it wasn't going to hold them to maturity. In fact, it was going to sell them very quickly as soon as the emergency was over. Did that happen? No. Ben Bernanke was wrong. Now, either he was incompetent or he was lying. But either way, you know, neither of those uh, options are, are good from the perspective of Fed credibility and whether or not you should believe them. Because if they're lying or incompetent, you know, what difference does it make? Whatever they say, just take it with a grain of salt. At the time, Ben Bernanke was making these assurances to Congress. I was calling him out. I was saying he's lying or he's incompetent. It's impossible. The Fed is never going to sell these bonds. They will be on the balance sheet forever. They are monetizing the debt. Who was right? Was Ben Bernanke right or me? Clearly, I was right. The chairman of the Federal Reserve was dead wrong, and here, Peter Schiff, just you know, sitting in his office you know, on the internet, I, I, I called him out. Nope, the Fed is wrong. Here's what's going to happen. The Fed is never going to be able to uh, sell these bonds. It's going to hold them forever. And that's exactly what happened. Now, remember, too, along the way, the Fed kept reminding us how easy it was going to be to normalize uh, interest rates, to return interest rates to normal. What did I say? Never going to happen. Impossible. Even if the Fed attempts to normalize rates, they'll never complete the process. Was the Fed right? No, the Fed was wrong. They were completely wrong. In fact, even before that, go back to the housing bubble itself, right? During the housing bubble, what did Alan Greenspan say? What did Janet Yellen say? They said there was no housing bubble. They said that people like me, Peter Schiff, although they didn't mention me by name, but they said people who think there's a bubble, they're wrong. Well, who was right and who was wrong? Was the Federal Reserve right to say there was no bubble or was I right to say there was? Obviously. And then even after the bubble popped, what did Ben Bernanke say as chairman of the Federal Reserve? He said the problems are contained to subprime. We don't have to worry about what's happening in the housing market Because it's only in subprime. That's what the Fed said. What did I say? I said the Fed was wrong. Ben Bernanke didn't know what he was talking about, that subprime was the tip of the iceberg, that the whole mortgage market was infected with this disease. Who was right? Ben Bernanke or me? Of course I was right. Ben Bernanke was completely wrong. The Fed is always wrong. I mean, it's almost like they're wrong so often It's almost impossible because they should at least be right once in a while. If they're just guessing, every once in a while, they're going to guess right. They never guess right. They're always wrong. Remember what they said about the balance sheet? Janet Yellen said, yeah, we're going to shrink the balance sheet. It's going to be like watching paint dry, right? Because it's going to happen. It's going to be so boring. No one's going to notice. And I think uh, Powell kind of had the same idea about shrinking the balance sheet. Maybe he's the one that said the paint dry. I can't maybe, or they both did. I don't know. But the Fed believed that they can shrink the balance sheet and nothing bad would happen. What did I say? I said that everything was going to implode when they tried to shrink the balance sheet. And that's exactly what happened in the fourth quarter of 2018. And then of course when the Fed finally started to cut interest rates in 2019, what did Powell say? Oh, this is just a mid-course adjustment. We're just gonna have a couple of cuts before we start hiking again. Everything is fine. What did I say? I said the opposite. I said, no, this is the beginning. They're going back to zero. This is not a mid-cycle adjustment. This is complete capitulation. We're going back to zero. The Fed, when they first did quantitative easing and they did it the first time and they had to do it again, all right, we're never going to do it again. This is a once in a lifetime. It's a 100-year flood. We have this emergency measure. And the only reason we're doing QE is because we have this unique financial crisis. What was I saying? No, I said, they're, they're never going to stop. QE4, QE infinity. I was right. And it's not so much that I was right. I mean, other people were right. My main point is that the Fed was always wrong. Whenever the Fed comments about the efficacy of its policies or its ability to reverse its policies or the effects its policies are going to have, they are always wrong 100% of the time. It's hard to actually do that, right? So that's a pretty good indication uh, that they're lying because even if they were incompetent, if they were just incompetent, every once in a while, they'd get something right. But to get it wrong all the time, maybe they're a lot smarter than we think and they're just lying. And that would explain why why the Fed is always wrong. But the point is, discount what they're saying. So when you hear these guys talking or looking at these numbers and somehow putting a happy face on horrific numbers, look, when your trade deficits are exploding because you're not producing, yet you're out there buying stuff, right? we are living beyond our means. Is that a good sign? Is that what strong economies do? Do they have to live off of debt? Do strong economies have to borrow money from some of the poorest countries in the world? That's not the sign of strength. That's a sign of decay. It's a sign of a bubble. I mean, once upon a time in America, it was the opposite of this, right? We used to produce so much that we had huge surpluses. We had so much wealth that we loaned money to everybody. America had the biggest trade surpluses in the world. We were the world's biggest uh, current account uh, creditor nation. Weren't we strong then, right? I mean, America was clearly much stronger in the past when we had big surpluses than now when we had big deficits. If big surpluses were a sign of our industrial might and our wealth in the past, then why aren't massive deficits a sign of the reverse today? Of course they are, but everybody's got their eyes closed because they're focusing on the wrong things. They're looking at what we're spending and they're completely discounting the source of the money. How we're sustaining it, just like the guy who lost his job and just starts living on a credit card, if you only look at what he's spending, you're going to have a completely different picture of this guy's financial health than if you take a complete look and see where the money he's spending is coming from. And how anybody can look at this data, look at the exploding budget deficits, the exploding trade deficits, and the Fed, and somehow think that this combination is going to lead to a strong dollar. I mean, this is complete and utter nonsense. In fact, you can look at the supports that rest beneath the dollar as being a three-legged stool. There are only three legs that have been supporting the dollar, and that's the trade deficits, the budget deficits, and Fed policy. And what I mean by the trade deficits is we always have trade deficits. That's a byproduct of our uh, bubble economy. But when the trade deficits are positive for the dollar, it's when the trade deficits are getting smaller. So if you go back and you look historically, a strengthening dollar is correlated with shrinking trade deficits, and a weakening dollar is correlated with growing trade deficits. Now, that makes sense, because when you have a trade deficit, we are exporting more dollars, and now the world has these excess dollars that it doesn't need, And they go to sell them, right? If you are, let's say you're operating a business in Germany and you have surplus with the United States, now you're German companies and you have all these extra dollars, but you don't need those dollars because you got to pay your employees in in euros. You got to pay your rent in euros. You got to pay the interest on your bonds in euros. So the dollars have to be sold that you earned trading with America. And, you, you know, you need to buy euros. So when the trade deficits are bigger, then the world has more dollars to unload. When the trade deficits are smaller, they have fewer dollars to unload. And so that's been bullish for the dollar because the supply of dollars is growing more slowly. The same thing with the budget deficit. We pretty much always have budget deficits. So the question is, is the budget deficit rising or is it falling? And if you go back and you look you know, historically, and I'm not talking about for the whole history of the republic, but go back to you know 1980s, you know, kind of recent history where you can see this stuff, uh, because you know prior to that we had trade surplus. So in the era where we've had deficits, budget deficits, trade deficits, as America has been you know disintegrating uh, beneath the surface, the budget deficits when they are getting smaller, that is bullish for the dollar, that supports the dollar. When budget deficits are getting larger that is weaker for the dollar. That is bearish. And why is that? Well, the larger the budget deficits are, the more we have to rely on foreigners to finance our spending. So if we have more demand, right, if we are borrowing more money, right, that is going to mean a weaker dollar because now there are more treasury bonds that are being sold into the market. We're increasing the supply of US treasuries, which are de facto US dollars. And so that weighs down the value of the dollar. Conversely, if budget deficits are shrinking, the reverse is true. And also, if the US doesn't have to borrow as much money to finance its deficits, that means that capital is available uh, for other more productive purposes. Uh, and that has been bullish for the dollar, right? And so, and if deficits are rising and the US government is, is taking up more capital, uh, then that's bearish. And then, of course, in the world of quantitative easing, the bigger the budget deficits, to the extent that the Fed is monetizing those deficits, the larger the deficits, the more dollars the Fed has to print to buy up those bonds. And so the weaker the dollar becomes because it's a function of supply and demand. If the supply of dollars is growing faster because the Fed has to print them even faster to buy even bigger budget deficits, well, then the dollar's going to be weak. If the Fed can slow down money creation because the budget deficits are getting smaller, or maybe the Fed doesn't have to monetize them at all, well, then that's going to support the dollar. So those are two of the three legs. And the third leg is the Fed itself, right? If the Fed is tightening, if the Fed is raising interest rates, shrinking its balance sheet, or talking about doing those things, right? The Fed has a tightening bias that is also supportive of the dollar. If the Fed has an easing bias, right? If it's doing QE, if it's got interest rates zero, and it's telling the markets that rates are going to stay low, if it's forward guidance is easy, well, that is dollar negative. Well, if you look right now, all three of these legs of the stool are gone. Trade deficits exploding, budget deficits exploding. Fed never been easier in history. So there is absolutely no support at all beneath the dollar. Everything is flashing that the dollar is going to crash. Yet you have so many people that expect the dollar to rise for all kinds of bizarre reasons. It's not going to happen. The dollar is going to collapse. The only question is when and how far does it drop. But you don't want to find out owning dollars. Believe me. You want to find out in the safety of foreign assets. You want to be in gold. You want to be in these mining stocks. You want to be in foreign stocks, dividend-paying stocks. Uh, merging markets, even foreign bonds, anything is better than owning the U.S. dollar or U.S. dollar-denominated debt. Also, speaking about phony economies, I was looking at a chart that somebody happened to tweet out, and in fact, I just retweeted it myself, but Lizanne Saunders on Twitter posted a chart that showed a parabolic spike in business applications Uh, earlier this year. I mean, it's just off the chart. I mean, Americans have never rushed to start up more businesses as they're doing right now. I mean, it's incredible, uh, the rush of small business applications. And you would think, wait a minute, we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? Everybody is shutting down. Businesses are closing. Why would we see this record surge In applications for businesses. And there's one rational explanation for this, and that is the Payroll Protection Program, the PPP. You see, that only went to small business owners, and they reaped a windfall from these sham loans, because they're really not loans, they're gifts. Uh, And they made out like bandits. And so what I think people are trying to do is they're trying to prepare for the next round of PPP money. So a lot of Americans are starting up sham businesses so those businesses will have already been established. So, that the next time there's another bailout of business, they now have a business that will qualify for the bailout money. And again, this is exactly what I said from day one. This thing was gonna end up being a cesspool of fraud and abuse. It's probably the biggest boondoggle and public fleecing in American history. Uh, People are getting rich off of this program, and this program enjoyed bipartisan support. Even under divided government, we were able to get this thing through. So imagine how much more damage would come if we didn't have a divided government, if we had an easier glide path for more of these businesses. But again, this is evidence of the bubble nature of the economy. I mean, some people will look at this spike in business applications and they'll think, oh, business must be great. Look at all these businesses starting up, and it wouldn't even occur to them that they're not starting up to do any business. The only business they're going to do is monkey business. The business is fleecing the taxpayer and getting money under the guise of operating a business. Uh, But of course, you know, when the government is giving out so much money, people are going to do whatever they can to qualify for their share of the giveaway. One thing, though, I, I did want to talk about regarding taxes and the impact that Biden is likely to have on the further complication of the U.S. tax code. Because I just finished last week, I think I sent in, or is it two weeks ago? I forget. But I finally did my 2019 tax return. And I always have to file extensions. So that's why I was able to file so late. And this year, even later than ever, because I think the normal deadline was extended due to covid so the normal extension was extended as well. But I filed my tax return. And, you know, it's not really a return because, first of all, I'm not returning anything to the government that the government doesn't already have, right? So it's, it's really a confession, right? Uh, I'm confessing all this stuff to the government. But it's not really a return either. It, it's a book, right? My tax return was 295 pages long. I mean, there are a lot of books that aren't even that long. It's a good-sized book. I mean, think about that, 295 pages long. That's my federal tax return, right? That's not my local tax return, right? That's just my federal tax return, 295 pages. And by the way, it's actually going to get longer because I just got yesterday a K-1 that I never got. The guy just sent it out to me late. I totally forgot about it, right? And now I got to amend the return that I just filed. So it's going to get even longer, And of course, it's going to increase my cost to file the return because now I got to amend it. And of course, adding insult to injury, the K-1, I did have income on that K-1, but it's all tax free. It actually is from a Puerto Rican company that I had invested in. And so it's Puerto Rican source. So I don't even pay any taxes on it, but I still got to report it. So I still got to refile and I've got to increase the size of my tax return. And Think about it. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people in America that have tax returns much bigger than mine. I mean, I'm sure there are people that are filing tax returns that are 1,000 pages long. I mean, imagine how many pages are in Donald Trump's tax return. You know? I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, does anybody think that they're living in a free country when they are required by law to file a 295-page document with the government confessing everything that they're doing? I mean, imagine a medieval serf living under a feudal system, giving 25% of what he produces to the Lord. Can you imagine if in addition to that, the serf had to file a 295-page return and confess all that information to the Lord? I mean, you think any serf would have stood for this? Oh, no, no. I mean, no people ruled by any monarch would have put up with what Americans impose upon themselves. Do you think the founding fathers, I mean, we had a revolution uh, because of uh, the tax on tea. I mean, what? how does that compare to the IRS? Do you think King George would have ever contemplated in his wildest dreams sending IRS agents to the United States? I mean, if he did that, everybody would have joined the revolution. I think only a third of the country was in favor of the revolution. Everybody would have been in favor of it if King George tried the IRS he tried to send IRS agents to the new world to collect an income tax and Americans had to file these forms? I mean, first of all, who the hell even knows what's in this form? I'm reading this thing, right? I got I got to sign all these pages. I mean, I don't even have time to read it. I have to pay somebody else to prepare it. And then I just sign it. And by the way, it cost me $30,000, $40,000 just to file the thing. I mean, how can you have a law that in order to comply with the law, Right? you got to pay $40,000, Right, that's, and that's not even deductible anymore. They changed the law so that the money that you spend complying with the law is not deductible from the tax that you have to pay. Right, You can't deduct now the cost of preparing your income tax return from your income taxes. But how can the government have a tax that is so complicated that if you want to pay the tax, you have to pay a lawyer and an accountant all this money just to figure out what you actually owe? See, that in and of itself should tell you that the law has got to be unconstitutional for the government to require this. How can a tax be so complicated? Taxes should be easy. You should just pay them. You shouldn't have to hire lawyers and accountants to figure out what you owe. The government should tell you, here's what you owe. Here is your bill. That's how it should work, right? When you pay sales taxes, you don't have to calculate the tax. Here's your, you buy something, they tell you what the tax is. When you pay a property tax, You know, they don't ask you to figure out what your taxes are. They assess it. They send you a bill. Here's what you owe. Put a check in the envelope. Send it in. That's what it's supposed to be like. The government's supposed to tell you, even if they want to tax income, the government should have to figure out what your income is and send you a bill. And then you pay that, right? Not like you just got to figure it out yourself. I mean, basically, the government has turned everybody into a slave, into an unpaid tax collector, tax assessor. Everybody has to tax themselves, assess themselves, comply on their own. I mean, this is ridiculous, right? Free people would never be subjected to something as onerous as the IRS and the, and the, and the income tax. And the fact that we have such a tax and the fact that we are uh, doing all this stuff for the government proves that we are not free. And of course, in addition to diminishing our freedom by requiring us to do all this work just to pay a tax, you have to think about the economic damage that is caused to the economy based on all the lost productivity that is the result of having to comply with these laws. How much more productive would we be if we didn't have to spend so much time figuring out what we owe? And if we didn't have to spend so much money trying to pay what we owe, and if we didn't have to spend so much time trying to organize our affairs to minimize what we owe. I mean, a lot of money is spent trying to avoid taxes and a lot of that money and a lot of that time otherwise could have been devoted to maximizing economic output. Instead, it was being devoted to minimizing taxes. The key to an effective tax system is not to have a negative impact on the economy. You see, the government wants to tax income. But because they're taxing income, there's a lot less income to tax because the income tax itself destroys the income. So what you want to do is you want to figure out how much money you need to fund the government. And of course, you want to keep government as small as possible so that you burden the economy as little as possible. And then you want to find out the most effective way to go about raising that revenue to be the least disruptive possible to the economy overall. And the best way to do that is through simple sales taxes or value-added taxes, taxes on articles of consumption. They do the least economic damage because they are easy to pay. Nobody has to calculate them. Nobody has to hire lawyers. Nobody has to hire accountants, right? None of this. Um, And there's no lobbyists because there's no special loopholes, there's no exemptions, so you take all the power away from government, and when government doesn't have power, nobody is lobbying to have that power used to their advantage or used to the disadvantage of somebody else, and you don't distort the economy. You don't have people focusing on limiting their taxes. They focus on maximizing their income, maximizing their effort and economic output, and you don't tax people for what they put into the economic pot, you tax them for what they take out. As a result, a lot more goes into the pot, right? And not as much comes out. And so the pot gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and the country gets richer and richer and richer. Instead, we're doing the exact opposite. We're doing the worst possible thing we can, raising tax revenue in the worst possible way, and we're raising a tremendous amount of it. And in fact, government is now so big that even though it collects all these taxes, it's insufficient to fund government. Government is now using inflation as its primary source of funding, the government prints more money than it collects in taxes. And I agree with that Bank of America analyst that when we have a Democratic cream sweep, that those numbers are going to just soar. We're going to be printing twice as much money as we collect in taxes, and the results are going to be horrific. And while I am on the subject of lobbying and government power, and a lot of that power being a function of the tax code and a lot of the money that the government is spending that it has no constitutional right to spend. And I went over that in detail in yesterday's podcast over what the government constitutionally, the federal government anyway, has a right to spend money on and what it does not have a right to spend money on. And most of what the government spends money on now is unconstitutional. But a byproduct of all this power in government is all of the lobbying. And how valuable it is when you have a connection to Washington, right? When you have influence that you can then sell. I mean, that's what all these lobbyists are all about. It's about selling their access. It's about uh, marketing the influence that they have, right? And some of the most successful lobbyists are people who were once in government, right? And they have a lot of connections once they leave government. And people know that. And so they're able to make a lot of money. Uh, basically whoring out uh, their connections. And the reason I'm bringing this up now is because of the New York Post expose on Hunter Biden, in which they laid out a pretty strong case with evidence uh, that Hunter Biden has made tens of millions of dollars because his last name is Biden. I mean, not because he's competent, not because he's, he's good at doing anything. The only thing he's good at is getting money based on his name, Biden, and the fact that he has influence and connections because of his father having been the vice president of the United States, having been a member of the U.S. Senate. This guy has made all kinds of money. He's been paid off by Chinese or Russians or who knows how many different foreign companies. He gets to sit on boards. He gets to uh, put money into companies. I mean all I don't have to go into all of the various things that Biden did right the fact that he you know he gets contracts to 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 build in Iraq even though he has zero experience building he gets given you know a billion and a half dollars to manage by the Chinese government he's got no money management experience I mean I mean this guy is making a fortune because he is Joe Biden's son and the reason that they were able to figure all this out is because Hunter Biden apparently took a laptop computer to a computer repair shop because it wasn't working and then never claimed it. He just left it there. And so the owner of the repair shop you know, tr- tried on many occasions to reach out to the owner of the laptop to come get the laptop, and eventually it became abandoned property. And so the owner of this repair shop, well, then it was his laptop, and he took a look inside and lo and behold, you know, it's Hunter Biden's and he's got all his emails and all his text messages and everything he's done and all this stuff is there. And so, you know, the FBI gets the computer, the New York Post has the computer. And so that the, the information is out. I mean, if this was like one of Trump's kids and like they were, you know, getting this kind of information, because of course they are trying to accuse President Trump of using his office uh, for his own financial gain, right? But that's exactly... What the Bidens have been doing—that's certainly what Hunter Biden has been doing. Now, you're going to think that Joe Biden was clueless to what his son was doing? I don't think so. In fact, some of the emails show uh, that that Joe Biden was aware of what was happening—you know, with his son trading on his name and his influence and his access. But you know, this is this is nothing that should shock anybody, right? This is what goes on. This is politics in America. This is one of the reasons that so many people want to get into politics, and this is why so many people enter politics poor and they leave rich, right? This whole idea that they're there for public service is a bunch of BS. That's how they get elected, but they're there to serve themselves, not the public, and a lot of times they end up serving themselves even better after they leave uh, government than while they're still there. You know, While they're still there, it's not as easy to sell their access as after they leave. But of course, while they're there, one way they can do it is their relatives and their friends can sell their, their access. And who knows how uh, Joe Biden himself may have been cut in on the action in some secret accounts. I have no idea. But apart from the hypocrisy of the Biden camp having been accusing Trump and his kids of doing exactly what he and his kids have been doing. Right, while he was a sitting vice president. And you know, imagine how much Kaching Hunter Biden would rack up if his dad became president. If he can make all this money, tens and tens of millions of dollars, being the son of the vice president. God, a guy could be a billionaire as the son of the president. So this should be a big story, right? I mean, I would think so. I mean, everybody in the media should be covering. I mean, this should be criminal. I mean, if it's not criminal, right, it's clearly unethical. To do this kind of stuff. And, you know, there should be a lot of questions should be asked about what was actually done for this money and was the U.S. compromised? I mean, did contracts go to companies that were less efficient and more expensive because of connections that benefited Hunter Biden, which would mean that the U.S. taxpayer would end up paying more because it benefited Hunter rather than having Uh, the best contract awarded to the lowest cost uh, bidder or the higher quality. If the U.S. was compromised or maybe our national security was compromised, who knows what happened. But a lot of the work that Hunter Biden was being paid to do, a lot of the lobbying was on behalf of foreign companies, not domestic companies, although it's bad either way. But certainly if you look at all the allegations about Trump with respect to what he's done with Russia – And now you look at, you know, they're doing the same thing and look at what Hunter Biden was doing with the Chinese. This is a big story, except the story gets even bigger, not based on the story itself, but based on the media's attempt to downplay and cover up the story, which has now become an even bigger story, which is Twitter, apparently, after the New York Post article came out, people started tweeting it. Well, Twitter started preventing... The sharing of this story. And they actually started shutting down the Twitter accounts of people who were sharing the story. And they were preventing the story from trending because they didn't want people on Twitter to know about the story, to read the story, to learn the truth about what happened to Hunter Biden. Now, how is this possible? You're talking about Twitter, you're talking about Facebook, right? These are supposedly. Uh, public forums to disseminate information, not suppress it. Now, I think what Twitter was saying as well, you know, this is violating our policy because those emails that are being shown in the New York Post article, the New York Post did not get them with the permission of uh, Hunter Biden, right? They they got these things without the permission of the owner. And, you know, we don't want to support that on Twitter. We don't want to reward people who illegally obtain information? We're not going to allow that illegally obtained information to be shared on our on our site. So we're you know we're going to shut it down. Except they do that all the time. I just mentioned the Trump tax returns. What was it a couple of weeks ago that the New York Times writes a big article about Trump's tax returns and how he only paid seven hundred dollars in taxes, and that they got all this information from his returns that were leaked from unknown sources, right? The New York Times admitted that Donald Trump did not hand them his tax returns, that they were illegally leaked, that people showed private tax returns that belonged to Donald Trump without Donald Trump's permission. The New York Times had no problem writing about all that information that they got without permission. And Twitter, Facebook, they didn't think there was any problem with those articles or people tweeting about those articles or posting those articles or sharing those articles. How is there a double standard, right? Obviously, they were trying to come up with an excuse to explain why they were simply using their power to try to advantage Joe Biden to the detriment of Donald Trump. It's clear that social media wants Biden to win the election, and therefore, they are going to do what they can to minimize the sharing of news that is negative about Joe Biden and try to do whatever they can to maximize the dissemination of information that is negative about Donald Trump. Now, I know a lot of people are outraged about this because they say it's censorship. And, you know, it's not censorship because Facebook and Twitter are private companies. And so as private companies, if they have a political agenda, you know, they can pursue it. They can you know, do whatever they want. It's their company. And, you know, they're not even charging people to use the service. I mean, if you have a Twitter account, it doesn't cost you any money. I mean, so what do you expect? I mean, you're getting the service for free, right? So, you know, you get what you pay for. But here is the problem. And I've mentioned this before on the podcast. And this really shows uh, that we need to do this. These companies right now enjoy a special privilege in the law that exempts them from being sued for any information on their sites that may be defamation or you know slander right they can't be sued so if i go on twitter and i say something about somebody or some company and it's defamation and what i'm saying is not true and not based on fact and it hurts somebody the person who is hurt can't sue twitter they have a special exemption now of course If the New York Times writes an article and they defame somebody in that article or they publish an op-ed and the op-ed contains some defamation in it, the New York Times could be sued, right? They don't have the special exemption. But the way the internet got this special exemption, the way these websites got it is they said, hey, we are going to be like a virtual town square, right? This is where the public meets together to express themselves, right? To express ideas, to express their opinions. And so we want an open forum, right? We, this, we want freedom of speech on our platform. You see, we don't wanna have to uh, monitor the platform and take down content that we don't agree with uh, because we wanna shield ourselves from liability. Because if we're worried about liability and we have to examine the truthfulness of everybody's post, then it's going to destroy the concept of this virtual town hall that we're trying to create where you have this forum of free expression. And so the government said, yeah, you're right. Yeah, we want this. We want freedom of speech to be able to be expressed on Facebook, on Twitter. And we understand that if we were going to hold you to the same standard that we actually hold a newspaper or a magazine that has to fact check everything and stand behind everything, then it would have a chilling effect on you developing these virtual social platforms. So we are going to give you this exemption. Well, what this proves is that they lied to Congress, that they are not providing a virtual town hall. They are, in fact, a news organization, a private company, censoring their content. They are uh, highlighting the views that they agree with, and they are repressing those that they disagree with or completely censoring them from their platform altogether. So now that they've admitted that they're doing that, now that they're saying, hey, we're we're looking at all this and we're judging whether or not we think uh, it's worthy of, of being shared or being seen, once they admit they're doing that, well, then they're not providing the very platform that was the basis for that exemption. So either one or two things has to happen. They have to lose that exemption or they have to stop uh, policing what's put up on their sites. Now, I can see a difference between somebody advocating violence. Like if I want to go on Twitter and I want to say, hey, we should kill this guy and here's a picture of him and here's where he lives. I mean, clearly they can't post that because I can't go into the public town square, and start advocating that we murder somebody. That's not part of my freedom of expression or my freedom of speech. So clearly, if somebody tries to post something that represents a physical threat to somebody, then yes, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, they need to immediately shut that stuff down. But a news story about Hunter Biden, even if it's false, I mean, it's not up to Twitter or Facebook to make a decision about whether the information is true or false. You have a right to say things that are not true in that public forum. Let the public decide what they want to believe and what they don't want to believe. You can't have the social media companies themselves making those decisions while claiming to be neutral and by claiming to provide a open forum. So something needs to happen. They either need to lose their exemption or they have to completely change. And I'm in favor of some companies having that protection, if they actually provide a free, uncensored public forum that doesn't impose arbitrary criteria to try to play up the posts that they agree with and downplay those they disagree with. But this is a situation where it's hard to say what's more outrageous, the conduct of Hunter Biden or the conduct of Twitter and the conduct of Facebook. Is the news The worst part of the story or the way social media tries to cover up the news? Now, as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing shocking about what Hunter Biden did because this is what they all do. This is the game of politics. This is why it's so lucrative. This is why everybody wants in on the action. This is why there's so much wealth. The wealthiest counties in the country are the counties that surround Washington, D.C. Why? What product does Washington, D.C. produce? Nothing, the only thing they sell is influence. They are influence peddlers. They sell access to politicians and the politicians have the power, right? And that's why they now have the wealth. And that's why I wanna take the power away from Washington. One way to take away the power is to get rid of the tax code, get rid of the income tax. But as we shrink government, if we force government to live within the confines of the constitution and only spend money that's constitutionally authorized they'll have a lot less money to spend. And so your lobbyists are going to disappear. Once you don't have all these government contracts to give out, then all the lobbyists trying to get them go away. Once you no longer have a tax code, then all the lobbyists trying to get special exemptions and special tax breaks, they're all gone. And then when you take all the money out of politics... All the scum like the Bidens, all the people that are in it for themselves, despite the fact that they want to pretend that they're, you know, they're, they're from Scranton and they're for the middle class working guy when they're really there to enrich themselves. When you take away all the power and all the money and all those perks, then maybe we'll actually have some good people that go to Washington because they won't be going there to enrich themselves because they won't have all this power to peddle. They won't have all this influence to sell right? Let's make it so if you go to Washington to work as a congressman or a senator, you're actually there to serve the public instead of serve yourself. I mean, maybe if we did that, we wouldn't even need term limits because the people who were serving in Washington would be the kind of people that we want to have there. And they wouldn't want to be the kind of people that would spend their entire lives there because they couldn't afford it. They'd have to go back to the private sector and be productive again. They couldn't get rich pretending to be public servants at the same time that they're picking the pockets of the people they're supposedly there to serve and enriching themselves.